Hello and welcome to episode 214 of Retro Encounter, RPG Fan's weekly podcast of many topics. I'm Mike Solosi, and we're here uh, with another topic, same as last week, but this time we are finishing off our discussion of Vagrant Story, and again, I am joined by Joe Padilla. Howdy. So, Joe, um, I have a confession to make, and this is not the fun kind of confession. I, I feel a little bad about this, because this makes three games in a row for Retro Encounter, where I've been unable to finish the game of the month in a appropriate-slash-timely manner. Uh, I, I came pretty close with Trails of Cold Steel. I don't, I don't feel that bad about that one, but I wasn't able to finish Wild Arms in time, or Vagrant Story in time, with you, who, uh, who I enjoy talking to very much, so I apologize in advance, Joe. It's all good. Life happens. Yeah, I, I had some life happening this month, let me tell you. I, I um... The past two weeks or so, I've uh, I have had an eye injury, something called iritis, which I wasn't even aware existed until I had it, and a, and uh, and ophthalmologists gave me special eye drops for it. But uh, yeah, I haven't even been able to play um, uh, to look at screens long enough to play very many video games the past week and a half, two weeks. Uh, so I, uh, I I binged a little bit on Pokemon when it ca- when uh, Pokemon Sword and Shield version came out a little while ago. But uh, other than and other than that, I barely made any progress on Vagrant Story, so I'm afraid I was unable to finish it for the podcast, and won't be able to speak to about it with the level of expertise that you that you will. But I, you know, I have zero fear about spoilers. We are going to spoil the entirety of Vagrant Story and have the best discussion we can. But I'm afraid you're going to have to carry the team Lamar Jackson style this time, Joe. I will do my best with that. I don't know about expertise, but I. <laughs> But I will throw something together and do my best. <laughs> that is above and beyond what uh, what I'd like. So let's sort of figure out where we left off. Now, Joe, you were able to finish Vagrant Story as you uh, talk, told me before the podcast, and uh, you have a, and you even posted a little bit about social media. We got some we got some positive reactions when you were um, on the RPG Fan Twitter account. Uh, so, so there's. At least some um, positive hype around uh, Vagrant Story, or p- at least positive nostalgia. Was it was that your experience too? Um, interacting on social media. Yeah, uh, we yeah we got a lot of traction when um, when discussing Vagrant Story. Um, this is I think it's kind of the the RPG fan slash retro encounter wheelhouse that this is like this oh, is yeah. the type of game that uh, that the people want to hear about. So. Um. Uh, from my observations, I think the games that uh, listeners get the most excited about are uh, PS1 and PS2, mm-hmm. because I think the most likes and biggest reactions we've ever gotten on Facebook or Twitter were for the Xenogears podcast that we did in 2016, Ooh. and uh, and PS2 stuff rates very well. We got uh, a bigger reaction than even I thought we would on the uh, for the. Uh, Wild Arms 3 podcast last month. I always thought of that game, or I'm sorry, two months ago. I always thought of that game as sort of niche, a little bit like, you know, not one of the Square Enix mainstream games. But we got a lot of people excited about it. I'm I'm surprised that uh, we couldn't recruit more people besides the two of us to play it for the podcast. But yeah, uh, Vagrant Story is exactly in the wheelhouse of listeners. And there's a lot of of interest in the game, even though it came out... uh, 19 or 20 years ago but what was your overall impressions or feelings after completing it um were you satisfied overall or was there maybe too many frustrating parts uh what are your feelings overall like with 
shortly after you beat it? Uh, this is a a sometimes extremely frustrating game, but at the end of it, um, with the final boss battle and the story having wrapped up, at least within the game, uh, though there is a bit of a cliffhanger, I think it's kind of incredible. I think this is I think this is one of the most fascinating games I've played in terms of the ridiculous muddled complexity of its battle system to a really great story which apparently Matsuno had to cut half of and even that half that still exists is one of the best stories I've seen in a game thus far. Right, and uh, one thing that we talked about last week that uh, maybe we should save this for later in the episode, but uh, we were concerned, or at least I was concerned, that this game, which was very much about a small group of players, uh, sorry, a small group of characters in a, in this very specific set, setting of uh, the city of Leamond, we were worried that, or uh, I was worried that it might spiral out of control and become a the entire Earth is threatened kind of story, where I liked the ca- the claustrophobia and the intimacy of the setting and characters. Do you, do you think, does it spiral out of control or does it sort of stay grounded? I mean, as far as, as, as grounded as a JRPG <laughs> of this era gets, which is, which isn't very. Um, I would say that it does, it does get a little, you know, it does get a little deus ex machina going on, but I think where some others kind of fail with that, um, I think it very much stays in the theming and the the belief systems of the characters in the places the system the the story goes. Okay, so it, it maybe balloons a little bit, but not mm-hmm. but doesn't spiral out of control. And it uh and you think it stays true to the characters and setting mostly. Is that is that a fair assessment on my part? Correct. Okay, yes. good. That that is that's a bit of a relief to me because if this game, you know, ends up with one of the main characters basically turning into a giant purple demon and the world, entire world <laughs> is suddenly threatened, I would have I would have found that disappointing a little and eye rolling very very much. But, well, but there's there's a bit of one winged angelness going on, but it's not sure. I mean, if, if <laughs> sure, if the final boss is a is a big transformed purple angel or one winged angel or some other form of angel, <laughs> I'm not bothered by that. But I would have been bothered if the stakes suddenly went from Leamond to entire world uh, in a matter of minutes. That, that's what I. Mm-hmm. That's not what I wanted, and I don't think that's what we got. So uh, where we left off. Um, Ashley Riot is a risk breaker, which is like a form of secret agent almost from the uh, from the local, uh, well, not really local, like from the kingdom government, uh, from like op- an operative of the kingdom of Valendia, who's dispatched into Leamond to try and shut down a hostage situation involving a duke uh, named Bar. Is it Barbaros or Barbados? I forget. Bar- is it Bardorba? Bardoba? Yeah, Bardoba. That's it. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of the Tales series Bar- <laughs> Bar- Bar- with Barbados. Um, and uh, so Duke Bar- Barboda is ostensibly the victim here, but it ends up we end up, end up learning that he is actually one of the people bankrolling the cult. And mm-hmm. uh, the cult has a specific goal. Uh, the the church has a specific goal, and have and have dispatched a group of knights to try and to try and stop it to try and stop the cult, even if it means um, hostages get uh, are killed. 
And then there's also a, another person named uh, the, the leader of the knights is, knights is named Guildenstern, and the leader of the cult is named Sidney. And then there's another uh, another character, Rosencrantz, who is another risk breaker like Ashley, our, our hero, who is uh, who is entering this scene with uh, with unclear motives and unclear allegiances. A- am I mostly okay so far? Yes, I okay. think I. I think Rosencrantz is no longer a risk breaker. I think he was sure. formerly one. He's but, he, I mean, he's, he's a, formerly a risk breaker, but definitely knows more about the situation and Ashley himself than uh, than at than Ashley does. Yes. Yeah. Right. And as we continue here uh, with the story, um, Ashley's uh, uh, partner that's been assigned to him uh, is kidnapped, and so Ashley's motivation is both the. Defuse the hostage situation, stop the cult, rescue uh, his partner, and uh, he encounters resistance from basically every other element here. Uh, Rosencrantz, Guildenstern, Sidney, uh, monsters, <laughs> uh, and uh, and a you know vaguely defined for, uh, forces of darkness because there are monsters and undead and a lot of stuff going on in Leomond. And, uh, I mean, I don't want to, like, you almost can make this Sex in the City or the Wire comment. The city is its own character in the story. Um, but it really is, though. <laughs> but in this case, I think it is. Because uh, it, it becomes clear that there are secrets underneath Leomond, and it's, uh, and Leomond is housing a vaguely defined power of darkness. Around, around when is, like, do the forces of darkness or the power of darkness become or when does when is Ashley made aware of that part of Leomond because that was I'd never really ran into that so he kind of becomes aware of that at a point with Sydney cuz Sydney kind of explains a bit about the uh, a bit about the world and such and uh Guildenstern and uh Guildenstern's lover um whose name Samantha Samantha yes um so they kind of find these markings and discover the kind of truth of the city um it's very much uh I I very much got the uh, the full metal alchemist vibe of it that uh the you know the entire city is supposed to bring out the forces of darkness as in full metal alchemist where it's like oh the whole the whole city can be made into the philosopher's stone so Right, like the the entire city is the uh, is the alchemic circle that uh, that that you know create that creates or seals off this uh, this power. I'm trying to think of a mm-hmm. of a similar analogy, but I'm um, my let's see, my pop culture and literary knowledge is failing me right now. But yet, but like the, the entire city is the seal for this darkness, and it becomes very clear that uh basically every party other than Ashley himself is trying to find this power of darkness mm-hmm. uh but i think sydney and the cult know the most about it like like sydney is very interested in uh in informing ashley about this like and almost every encounter they have sydney is like taunting ashley and telling him more about himself and more about the darkness in a way that he wants to almost like like Flirting is too strong a word, but but Sydney is wanting to connect with Ashley, and definitely uh, Guildenstern wants is more interested in killing Ashley. Yeah, yeah, Sydney. It it's interesting through the story how he kind of weaves 
in and out because there's one boss fight where you actually fight alongside him. Um, and yeah. so, and so that kind of throws your concept of Sydney out the window because this entire time you're chasing the, the cultists, you know, Sydney lost their all. And then, and then there's this boss fight where you're actually fighting alongside him and it seems that he is helping you to understand yourself and where you've come from. Yeah, um, at the when I was playing the very beginning of the game, I thought Sydney was sort of a clear antagonist, but also figured, you know, this guy's a smokescreen. This could be a situation like, oh, I don't know, like so many RPGs, like the, like the Last Story, or I don't know, even Final Fantasy Adventure One uh, or Second Insetsu One, where there's a clear early antagonist, but there's a ripe opportunity for another character to assume the mantle of main antagonist uh, when something happens to the first target. And, like, Sydney is clearly connected to the darkness, but the whole time I'm thinking, oh, man, either Rosencrantz or Guildenstern or even the Duke or the Cardinal will unexpectedly kill Sydney and then take his powers. I, I, I truly believed that um, uh, after sort of the most of the players had made an appearance. <laughs> and it, that's almost exactly what happens. But Sydney sort of is a little bit more interesting than a regular antagonist, I think. He's, I, I, it really felt like he was trying to draw Ashley in rather than try and stop at what Ashley was doing. Like this, the whole hostage situation maybe was trying to get the uh, the kingdom to dispatch Ashley and bring him to Sydney. Yeah, it's Sydney. Mm, he's uh, he's a very complicated character, and I I can't quite get a beat on him as to. We're dancing around it a little bit, but um, Sydney is also the illegitimate son of the Duke. Yes, and. Uh, and the Duke, who's been again, has been supporting this cult from the um, from behind the scenes, and is co- uh, collaborating with Sydney or, or cooperating with him on this stunt. Uh, it's, it's unclear exactly what's going on. Sydney has a connection to the darkness. The Duke wants the power of darkness and is uh, and is definitely using Sydney to get closer to it. But I, I'm not really sure what the point of this ploy was. I, like I, I think that Sydney does want to bring Ashley to him. Was there another reason that they did this whole thing? Like, uh, do they do they need all of this attention from the church and from the VKP, which is which is again like the uh, the, the the special agents of the of the kingdom? Do they need all of this attention drawn to Leomond? Like, what was the Duke trying? I I I get that the Duke wants the power of darkness, but what were they trying to accomplish with this whole hostage situation? Well, part of it, and this is kind of fast forwarding. He wanted the power of the darkness and, you know, <laughs> and spoilers, that ends up with Ashley. But, like, they wanted that power to be held by someone who they thought would be responsible with it. And so I- I'm wondering what what exactly they mean by it. Do they mean someone who will be aware and respectful of the darkness that's within them and won't use that to evil means? Will it be someone that will carry out their wishes for, um, for power and a legacy that will last decades or hundreds of years? I'm, it, it's not entirely clear, I don't think, what exactly 
having Ashley be the bearer of darkness means. My thought was that Sydney is a little insane and wants to give Ashley the power of darkness because he believes Ashley is destined for it or Ashley is the, is the, is the true, um, should be the true bearer of it. And then my other thought was that maybe if the VKP was aware of Ashley's potential to have the darkness, that Ashley, you know, when Ashley becomes the bearer of darkness, that he could be controlled. Mm. And and, uh, and um, the, the people in the church and the Duke himself definitely want the power of darkness for selfish reasons, whether it's a whether it's power or immortality. Immortality, but but again, that still makes me a little confused about Sydney because Sydney is the vessel of darkness, but seems to want to give it to Ashley. I, I at least I think. Did you get that feeling also? Yeah, and I, yeah, he. I mean, he definitely did want to give that to Ashley and it's almost like Sydney yeah I'm kind of I'm kind of threading this now but maybe because Sydney was this illegitimate child and because mm-hmm. of the the circumstances that he was put in this develop and this developing of his religious zealotry he kind of has a, an inferiority complex in some in some way that he that his power and his sway over the darkness is enough to take down the likes of Rosencrantz and others, but he believes Ashley to be the the true heir, the 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 masterpiece that it's seeking, or something. And he's just and he's just one stop along the way. Yeah, and uh, and Sydney also he seems like he has a really rough upbringing. He was a, a an illegitimate child of the Duke. And uh, had some kind of illness or condition that caused him to lose limbs and have them replaced by uh, by some I don't know pr- pretty uh, hardcore looking uh, metal replacement limbs, <laughs> mm-hmm. and uh, and I think that's probably also why the um, Phantom Pain is a subtitle or alternate or alternative <laughs> t- title of Vagrant Story and Phantom Pain, which it, which is Phantom Pain has shown up in a lot of different <laughs> game subtitles and story names over the years. Oh, you don't but, say. Yeah, yeah, but but Phantom Pain refer uh, listeners if you're in case for the uh, uninitiated. Phantom Pain sometimes refers to uh, a person who is missing, uh, who's had a uh, a a limb removed, but still feels the presence and and pain in that limb, even though it no longer exists. Uh, it's a side effect of people who've had limbs amputated, often, and so that and that made me. And when I saw that Phantom Pain was like a subtitle of. Or like Vagrant Story Part One, The Phantom Pain, might refer to Sydney's missing limbs, but also might refer to Ashley's memories. Yeah. Uh, so oh boy. yeah, so uh, let's um, run it back a little bit. Ashley has memories of a uh, of um, him killing his own family, or his family dying from an unknown assailant. But it's also unclear later on if these are Ashley's real memories or were implanted by the church or the vkp is that true ish <laughs> so it's because it I, I, I i never saw this play out in game to to an end yeah what it seems to be is that there were kind of that there were kind of one of two possibilities with this um and one of them is that his family was killed while he was having a picnic with them and the other is that he along with Rosencrantz, I believe, were risk breakers on a mission and they just killed this family. But, so, 
and throughout the story, you know, at first you're like, oh, Ashley's out for revenge. He has lost his family. He was this family man who lost everything and he's on this road to revenge. But then his repressed memories start coming back. And when when it says that these were repressed memories, his skills that he's reacquiring, it's kind of saying he has quite a bit of training in some sort of mercenary or assassin uh, skills, of course. And as it keeps going, you it, it just really makes you question which one is the the true memory. Is he this? Is he this murderous, cold uh, killer? Or is he this family man? It's not really said for sure, because by the end of the game, I was convinced that I was playing as this murderer this entire game. But then before the second part of the final battle with Guildenstern, you see this family again, reaching out to him. So was that fake? I don't know. And, and it looks like that um, definitely Rosencrantz and maybe also Sydney are aware of the veracity of these memories within Ashley. Mm-hmm. So they, they're uh, like sometimes it feels like Rosencrantz is almost taunting him, or mm-hmm. uh, because because like um, Ashley is definitely having these memories repressed, whether they're his own or a family that he had to kill to you know so there could be no witnesses to some other act he did, and. Uh, like 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 it feels like Rosencrantz is taunting Ashley, and Ashley is remembering more of what happened every time he meets Rosencrantz, and, and possibly also Sydney has more of an idea of Ashley's past than Ashley himself does. Um, it, it feels like another way that the VKP is trying to control Ashley, it, it, you know, because because they definitely know more about what happened to Ashley's family than Ashley does. They they I'm certain that higher ups in the VKP know the truth of this of the matter about this, mm-hmm. but and they might be. They might have re- removed or repressed his memories or implanted them as a means of controlling him because it feels like that these memories are, if anything, holding back a little bit. Like, like, like the, older ver- the previous version of Ashley was almost certainly more powerful and dangerous than the current level one Ashley that has difficulty killing lizard men if, you're, if your elemental affinities are off. In some cases, perhaps they didn't even need to implant this. It could be that his guilt from killing this family just caused him to repress a lot of this and to repress a lot of these um, yeah and, and and maybe even warp that memory to become his own family instead of instead of a family he didn't know and perhaps <laughs> for, for all we know both things are true maybe as a risk breaker he had murdered an innocent family um and he had attempted to repress this side of him started up his own you know had his own family and they were killed, and now this revenge plot is motivated by that. The game doesn't feel like a revenge plot at the beginning, but mm-hmm. with the introduce with the introduction of these flashbacks, it, the player thinks, "Oh, maybe the, maybe this is a revenge plot, or uh, or maybe this is just part of Ashley's pa- past that is motivating him in the present." But yeah. it's it, it's unclear. Um, the game is deliberately playing tricks on you especially withholding the uh, knowledge and motivations of uh, Sidney Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. Mm-hmm. And uh, one other thing, uh, this is circling around a little bit, uh, one other thing that you sort of learn more about as the game uh, goes on is the Grand Grimoire, which is a power, which is, they know that to be 
something very powerful that many of these groups seem to be searching for. But really, what the Grand Grimoire is is the entire town of Leamond itself, which is which is a you know sealing off a vaguely defined powers of darkness. Mm-hmm. And uh, also, you meet a couple. Uh, th- th- those aren't the only characters in this game. Um, we mentioned Samantha is uh, Guildenstern's lover, but there's also Dwayne Grissom, Tiger, and Nisa who are the other, uh, the other knights in Guildenstern's unit. And I think basically all of them are boss fights at one point. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, they're boss fights of some sort. Yeah. And uh, after you defeat one of them, I think it's the first one that, uh, that Ashley encounters, comes back as a zombie con- corrupted by darkness, which startles the hell out of the other knights. Yes, uh, Grissom. Grissom does. Yeah. Okay. So you have this hint of a power of darkness hidden inside the city with people looking for it. And then you see the darkness manifest in some scary ways in, you know, some of the things that Sydney is capable of doing and also creepy stuff like Grissom coming back as a zombie with uh, two of the other knights, like sort of holding him back while Ashley escape, uh, escapes their custody and moves on. So like the game does a pretty good job of keeping players off balance, but also, giving the player story breadcrumbs with these things like the uh, Ashley's flashbacks and mysterious dialogue coming out of Rosencrantz and Sydney. Mm-hmm. But it sort of comes into a head with like the final encounter with Sydney in which, uh, now I, I might, I might get this mixed up a little bit. Um, like, uh, Sydney has all the, has, um, has darkness powers. Rosencrantz encounters him. Uh, and, uh, Rosencrantz believes he'll be he can handle the powers of darkness, but Sydney straight up kills him. <laughs> yeah, and, and then uh, and the, and then uh, Ashley defeats Sydney, and uh, um, shortly after, like Sydney's uh, Sydney's defeat, Guildenstern sort of cuts in and uh, rips the dar- the powers of darkness from Sydney and puts him into himself, and and uh, and Guildenstern sort of becomes the. Uh, becomes the host of the powers of darkness that everyone's searching for and then kills the woman he loves to, as to like, because a sacrifice is required to, uh, to fully unlock the powers. I thought that maybe Sydney capturing, uh, Ashley's companion at the beginning. Oh, I forget her name. What was it? Um, Callow. Callow. Yeah. I think that Sydney might've captured Callow intending to use Callow as a sacrifice to put, to give the powers to Ashley, but it, it but it never gets that far. No, yeah, but but everything you just ran down is yeah basically correct, um, and and yeah, Guildenstern is the surprise, not surprise, <laughs> final final boss because like again, I figured okay, Sydney's a smokescreen. Someone else is going to take the powers and be the real final boss. I really, I I think I thought it was Rosencrantz from Rosencrantz's early introduction, but it, it ends up being Guildenstern. I had the wrong Hamlet character. <laughs> It does, yeah. It does end up being Guildenstern, and first of all, the last the last boss fight, it's uh, that's it's a heck of a boss fight. It's it's a test of it's a test of your reflexes, of your ability to chain commands, how you've built up Ashley to this point, your battle readiness. It is, I, I think, it's an excellent boss fight. Okay, but uh, you also told me how frustrating it was uh, before we recorded. It, it took you, you said, about 10 tries or more than 10 tries? I mean, th- that boss fight in itself, I didn't, I didn't find it terribly frustrating. I, f- 
I was like, okay, I think I'm learning something each time and getting a little bit better with my chaining and everything. That wasn't really the frustrating part. The frustrating part was the cathedral, the final dungeon. Mm, okay. Um, I mightily look through uh, a bit of a walkthrough and everything for it because it is very confusing, very long, very tiring. <laughs> and there's some really terrible block puzzles, which on like objectively the only the one thing that I will objectively say that that I would absolutely take out of this game no block puzzles block puzzles in this game terrible I don't understand <laughs> what I don't understand their purpose in the narrative or in in Ashley's uh, game mechanics just don't have them <laughs> sometimes I lament the lack of puzzles in modern RPGs because it felt like something that was almost required in RPGs of the late 90s and early 2000s. Like, the, it would be, you know, Dungeon Town Puzzle, Dungeon Town Puzzle sometimes. Mm-hmm. That would, it would even be that. Or maybe Dungeon Town Puzzle Boss, Dungeon Town Puzzle Boss, in some order. But sometimes we you, we, we get to extremes. I mean, this year we've had uh, episodes on Lufia 2, another game who, whose puzzles, I think, gets, get too challenging. But uh, when the puzzles get in the way of the story or in the way of the combat, the... And, and and not and don't become a highlight of what you're there for the game. Yeah, it's I mean, it really does become a big problem in in the game in terms of the narrative moving forward and just the mechanics don't work very well and they're always block puzzles, which just yeah. aren't terribly interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not against block puzzles, but I'm against block puzzles where the uh, third person camera and third person movement are you know, also not as good as you wish they were. Mm-hmm. So uh, do you think this game needed fewer puzzles or no puzzles or just easier puzzles? I'm not like a puzzle atheist or something like that's, I, it's fine for a game to have puzzles, but if they, if it's a narrative driven game and the block puzzles themselves don't fit into the narrative, there's no real, you know, true reason for them being in this game. This isn't a Professor Layton game. Like there, there wasn't any. At least I didn't perceive any justification for them being in there. So, yeah, especially if it, if a puzzle is just unlocking the door to the next room and not doing something cool in the dungeon. Like, uh, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I I find dungeon puzzles the most satisfying when they hit a level of Indiana Jones or Goonies nature, where solving a puzzle makes something happen in the dungeon that is cool to behold. And this, these are, these aren't those puzzles. Uh, yeah, uh, these are just, um, slightly generic block pushing puzzles that don't, that, that feel a little bit removed from the other parts of the game. I, 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 I was following a guide when I, as far as I got in this game. So I never really, I didn't find the puzzles satisfying or interesting. And it seems like they didn't get better as the game goes along. No, they just kind of get more frustrating and time consuming rather than giving you a sense of satisfaction. And I mentioned a few seconds ago that uh, I sometimes lament the lack of puzzles in more modern RPGs. When I played uh, Tales of Vesperia again earlier this year for the podcast, um, that game has some okay puzzles. And, uh, like, going through this game and solving a couple of puzzles and watching machinations happen in the dungeon made me think, oh, yeah, I kind of miss this. I kind of miss having uh, RPGs with a lot of puzzles in them. And then I you know, got to playing this game the past month, I'm like, oh, hmm, maybe we don't need to go back to the heyday of puzzles. Like, we can, like, the puzzles can stay with the uh, Zelda shrines of the world. (laughs) 
Well, I've um, earlier this year I was playing through uh, Silent Hill. You know, notably notable RPG Silent Hill. Mm, oh yes. <laughs> um, and that game has some puzzles that I that I really like in there, where it's not uh, taxing or frustrating movement wise, and it takes a bit of um, it takes a bit of logic to figure them out. Okay, okay, them... okay, a bit of logic. Some Silent Hill era puzzle logic is a little bit BS. Yeah, yeah, sure. Some some of them are some of them were uh, a little bit BS, but I like I found some satisfaction in them. But I found no such satisfaction in Vagrant Story. So, <laughs> um, and I felt like those I felt like those fit in with the system that it had in the narrative, like, like one, one puzzle that had you solving these kind of, um, where you had to like insert these kind of cultish runes into, um, into doors and such. I mean, that, that made sense. So. Sure. I mean, I'm talking about like adventure game and horror game puzzles of, of that era nature where, you know, yep. What is he have to find a soap and a knife and an old key that doesn't fit and then cup the soap into the shape of the key and then that that's the door like I, I don't know yeah. like, like, like <laughs> puzzle puzzle logic from adventure games and horror games of the '90s and early 2000s is not something I have a lot of positive nostalgia for mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, I mean but but I like a lot of puzzle games like I, I uh, played Zero Escape Virtues Last Reward earlier this year for the second time and played. Uh, Professor Layton in the Azran Legacy for the first time, also like in the first two months of the year, and both of those times I'm like, yeah, I, I want puzzles like this all the time. But mm-hmm. then, you know, uh, doing the last couple dungeons of Trials of Mana when I played that uh, twice over the summer, and puzzles in Vagrant Story, yeah, those kind of puzzles I could I I could do without. I, I think yeah. the only re- the, the only reason I didn't find the Trials of Mana puzzles frustrating is because I had done them before fifteen years ago, and I sort of half remembered them. <laughs> so, it, like going through the motions of doing a puzzle is fine, but actually trying to solve an obtuse puzzle it, it, some, sometimes feels pointless, unless the reward is really good. Like in you know a game with good puzzles, like Professor Layton, the the, you know, the entire world state changes with, with puzzles, and puzzles are really part of the game. But in in a game like Vagrant Story, puzzles aren't really part of the game and just sort of get in the way a little bit. And I, and I and I made that comparison both with the battle system and the puzzles in this game. But um, I, I want to go back to the final boss fight. You said that the cathedral was more frustrating than the fight against Guildenstern, but was the combat a problem against Guildenstern? You mentioned that uh, you felt like you were lear- you were learning uh, even through failed encounters in this game, Dark Souls style almost. But mm-hmm. was interacting with the battle system a problem with a few major boss battles in the second half of the game, or were you mostly taking care of yourself? Um, towards towards the end of the game, the the boss battles weren't as as difficult because I had come to some understanding, some reckoning with the crafting system. Um, it was more so just the the navigation of the world um, that. I had found a little bit difficult because while the map in the game is excellent, it's a, it's a really good map. Um, the layout was still confusing enough and I didn't um, remember exactly where some things had to be and it was very long. So th- this is not the most eloquent way of, uh, of saying that I wasn't a big fan of the cathedral. 
but um, hmm. that that's that's the way the it's the way the cookie crumbles. <laughs> All right, and uh, let's go on to the ending of this game. Oh, boy. A- after you defeat Gil- uh, Gildenstern, Ashley is now sort of the. Uh, is sort of the the bearer of darkness. He uh it looks like he escapes the city. Um Callow and even Sydney have survived this. But uh it, it's unclear whether Callow whether everyone survives. Uh you see yeah, you see Sydney visiting the uh the duke who is who's dying in his at, in his bed and it's mm-hmm. uh it, it's clear that Ashley is sort of now the vagrant or the wanderer and um and uh, and was it was Sydney's plan from the beginning that Ashley take on the powers of darkness, uh, and then the, the Duke ki- uh, kills Sydney, then dies himself in his bed, it, it, and uh, but then the VKP receive a message that the Duke was murdered, and Ashley is and Ashley is the uh, suspected murderer. So I think it ends with almost every major player thrown into disarray. We don't know what happened to Callow and a few other people. But uh, Sydney and the Duke and Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are all dead. Shout out Tom Stoppard. And Ashley has some incredible powers of darkness within himself, but he's a fugitive. Mm-hmm. Which gets me to a hypothetical question. Um, you mentioned that uh, this was intended part one of a two-part story. Uh, if a Vagrant Story 2 were to exist, say in 2020, what would it look like? Would it, would it be a super-powered Ashley like uh, on the run with all kinds of forces after him or would it be also set in a single city with Ashley trying to uncover some other mystery or secret with the darkness inside of him uh and do we and do you think it would retain the this really convoluted multi-layered battle system or would it be simplified because sometimes streamlining is the is the choice in the tw- in the 2010s um, I I imagine it would have to be streamlined a little bit. Right. I mean, th- this would this would not stand in 2020. Like it just even in now that we're in the age of all the Souls-like games and everything, this game still still is too finicky with its crafting <laughs> system to I think reach a wider audience. Now, just based on the actual act of combat and the chaining system and the reflexes required of that, I think that would go over fine. But it's just this um, the tedium of crafting and um, understanding how these all work together. So I imagine in terms of story, I would like to see a you know a part two of Vagrant Story that follows Callow as she's searching for or searching for Ashley because she has that that heart seer ability. Mm. Oh and yeah, the, there's that ability that manifests a couple times in the game where Ashley is able to um, see some see a memory or see something through the eyes of another person that gives him a clue of what's of how to go forward. Yeah, and so so he has so he has that ability which kind of allows him to you know warg into into people and she has this ability to see the truth that they're hiding from her. Um, so I would like to see her at least in part of that hypothetical game to see Ashley and converse with him and try to get to some of the bottom of what exactly it is that 
his past is and what he believes about himself and and whether that heart seer ability it can be kind of an unreliable narrator you know mm-hmm. something's yeah. alive but if if Ashley's life is alive but it's a lie that he's told himself and repressed to the point of actually believing it about himself what does she see through that interesting so. um my perspective i'm going to stick to uh, a gameplay mechanics angle first is that in uh, very recent years we've had multiple souls like games and also uh monster hunter world which is you know a a step above the previous Monster Hunter games in in, uh, complexity and playability. And also the uh, 2018 God of War. I think that a future Vagrant story would be like one of those three games. Um, A game that that has complexity in its action by using almost every button and giving you a lot of a lot of efficacy, a lot of efficacy and a lot of options in how to and how to uh, approach something. Because you know, in Vagrant Story, you use multiple weapon types and multiple affinities, and all and all kinds of systems layered onto each other. But just in a way that is, um, a way that, that that's streamlined and just more playable than this. Like, if they had a risk system, it would be very clearly communicated, and they would give you outs from the risk system that would leave you less vulnerable, and mm-hmm. they would probably give you a some kind of super powered move that you could. Uh, save up for because it like sometimes actually feels a little bit too helpless and if if you make mistakes in combat you'll almost play yourself into a corner that you can't escape from uh further further in the encounter you you know where i'm coming from here yeah yeah i i could see that with it yeah but uh like i think that a modern vagrant story sequel would avoid that feeling of helplessness at times in the combat system but just but just sort of give you a lot of buttons and a lot of uh and a lot of options that you see in modern action RPGs like Souls games or God of War, which is kind of an action RPG, <laughs> or uh, yeah. uh, or or Monster Hunter, which is also kind of an action RPG, and and the all three all of those games have crafting. Crafting is just games with a lot of customization. There's a lot of the time there's crafting. It no, it's Vagrant Story crafting in 2020 would resemble modern crafting and not old Vagrant Story crafting, which is for the best. Yes. But yeah. uh, from a plot idea, I really like your uh, I really like your theory. My first theory was just a a wandering Ashley riot on the run. But having like maybe the first two thirds or first half of the game being Callow searching for Ashley, and then the rest of the game them collaborating, is is much is a much more interesting angle. I like that a lot. the The real question though is is there, I mean, would they ever do a Vagrant Story two to finish the Ashley riot story, which I think is a extremely unlikely <laughs> proposition um uh, there is not uh, this game is a cult favorite and like we mentioned at the very beginning of the podcast it does very well in um our in our with our audience and in rpg fan circles I mean, is there any fan out fan outcry is there any demand for a for a vagrant story follow-up i mean my i'm thinking no we, we we don't really know what matsuno is up to recently but i'm pretty sure it isn't vagrant story too yeah i from from what I've seen, and I I don't want to make assumptions about this, but I've seen quite a bit that it seems that he might be kind of difficult to work with. I'm not sure what the the truth of that is. How much of that is a, a history of Square trying to um, trying to pivot from bad business decisions that they made that he hasn't been comfortable with, etc. Uh, my suspicion is that Matsuno uh, has difficulty executing upon his ambition. 
uh, with apologies to Caitlin Argyros and other Final Fantasy XII fans out there, FF12 <laughs> is a really cool RPG with a lot of big ideas that co- that almost completely falls apart in the second half. The 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 narrator just dr- I'm sorry, the narrative drops off a cliff, and the second half is completely rushed, and some characters even feel thrown out as soon as they're introduced. And, and also we have we have it on pretty good authority that Vagrant Story was uh, part one of like the first half of an of a fully intended story. So I think that Matsuno is really ambitious, is a great storyteller, but has problems, you know, uh, staying within budget and problems executing on his complete story ideas. And that, especially if his games don't make a lot of money, that would really scare him away from a big publisher like Square Enix. So having him as a guest developer for things like uh, <laughs> one storyline and three raids in Final Fantasy XIV in 2017 <laughs> is, a, is, a, is maybe an, an ideal use of his talents. And not, and not having to... And they're prob- my guess is Square Enix is unwilling to hang an entire game in his hands as executive producer anymore, but is, but is, uh, but is okay you know, having him consult or assist on games from a safe distance is my, is my, is my feeling, but I don't have any real knowledge of this, of course. Did you do that story, that story beat in those raids in 14? I haven't played it, but I'm just kind of wondering if you still got it. (laughs) Well, okay. I'm on break from Final Fantasy 14 right now. Uh, I had a, I played through a lot of the story in 2019, including the, including the first, Oh, like the first quarter or first third of Shadowbringers, which was amazing, but I was having PC issues and decided to take a break uh, in September of this year. I stopped playing it for a while. But, and, I, uh, and the Matsuno story section is the Alliance raid at level 70. So it was introduced in uh, 2017 and 2018 in three different patches. Basically, one, uh, one pretty sizable side quest that uh, is... Not a requirement, but a but strongly encouraged if you wanted to do the end game level stuff at level seventy. That involves um, Final Fantasy Tactics and Final Fantasy Twelve story beats, uh, going through settings from both of those games, and even having uh, an alternate universe version of Ramza and Alma, and oh. uh, and and several other characters from Final Fantasy Tactics as uh, as major as major players. Nice. Um, and it also takes the Final Fantasy Tactics angle of. Uh, there's sort of an ancient legend, and there was uh, one person that sort of uh, believed in it or recorded it, and you have to sort of uncover what happened. It's a, uh, it's, I, I'm, I'm dancing around how it really goes, but it's, it's a, uh, it's a good story, and you can definitely see Matsuno's uh, fingerprints all over it, and not just in the musical and visual choices that they make. And, uh, and if you're a Final Fantasy uh, 14 player who is at level 70, I strongly encourage it. It's a, it's really, really moderately challenging raids that uh that have some really fascinating design choices there, there's one boss fight where you have to sort of do algebra <laughs> where you where basically uh, you're given a sort of simple equation shown by the boss and you have to stand in a certain place based on the results of the equation and you you will basically uh <laughs> if when you play that boss fight you will very quickly understand how terrible most people are at math <laughs> but it's it's it's. I, I could talk about Final Fantasy fourteen for an entire podcast episode. I'm kind of I'm a little shocked we haven't yet. But yeah, it's no, just it, like the arithmetician. <laughs> a little bit, yeah. The the uh, yeah the arithmetician slash calculator uh, job mm-hmm. from Final Fantasy Tactics, depending which translation you're playing. But yeah, um, mm-hmm. I, I think that uh, Square Enix does not want to have Matsuno in charge of a full game anymore because there were 
uh, sort of development time and budget problems surrounding his games, especially Final Fantasy XII. And, yeah. and, and and there wasn't any vagrant story stuff in the uh, uh, in, in the Evilise raids in Final Fantasy XIV. Although I, I would have welcomed it, or at least I didn't notice any. Uh, but I, I think that we're not going to get a vagrant story too because Matsuno is can be a bit of a troublemaker, and also because I don't think there's really demand for it. Even though Matsuno is definitely respected as a storyteller and developer, that FF14 raid is really good. Yeah. And and part of this is that I think that Matsuno brings up um, concepts and characters that I don't normally see in in most games, and especially kind of within the 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 Square Square Enix uh, sphere. Um, <laughs> and uh, want to allow me to make another ridiculous Matsuno comparison. What's another developer that you know that is a bit of a problem child to his uh, to his main developer and and on, and often goes over budget? And uh, oh, who would that be? oh yeah, oh you see where I'm going. And also ha- often has very high concept ideas in his games, but are bogged down with a multitude of systems, but have very sophisticated storytelling and camera work and other elements. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I wonder who that could be. So my real question is: Is Vagrant Story a strand game? Um, <laughs> Yeah, like, when I was thinking about what Vagrant Story is like and how it feels like Metal Gear Solid 1 at times and how uh, Matsuno, you can make a few surface BS comparisons to Hideo Kojima, uh, just comparing them as developers is, you know, possible. I'm I'm not trying to make an important point here, but (laughs) I think that the reason we aren't seeing any more Matsuno games or any more new Matsuno games from Square Enix is maybe a similar reason why uh, uh, Hideo Kojima and Konami aren't on the best of terms. Yeah, I I feel like they probably I feel like they probably have a lot to talk about <laughs> if Matsuno and Kojima were ever in the same room. Uh, the real solution to this conundrum is uh, have Square Enix invite Hideo Kojima to design a Final Fantasy XIV dungeon. Now there's an idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. I mean, there's there's only a few degrees of separation here. I mean, <laughs> Snake is in Smash, Clouds in Smash. Like, they, there's something there. Monster Hunter is in Smash, and Monster Hunter is in FF14. Uh, okay. Right. So it, it's it's a circle of life. Yeah. One thing I have to have to bring up because I was so fascinated by it. Um, as we said, we're jumping around a lot. Golden Stern. Mm-hmm. And what he's doing, I was really fascinated with Guildenstern. You know, the boss fight itself I thought was excellent, but Guildenstern's motivations I thought were very interesting because you know I don't tend to make mo- I don't tend to make uh, uh, vague my politics or anything like that. <laughs> um, but, but so is this, um, is his motivate is his motivation just um uh, uh, upending the the government and social structure of Valendia? Well. That's that's the thing is that um, he has this he has this quote that he says uh, towards the end uh, to Sydney that I really liked if if you would allow me the indulgence um, where um, Sydney kind of accuses him kind of funnily of being stuck on religious dogma and he says not religion, Sydney, revolution, a fresh wind to blow away the disease of the land for our realm is sick 
it suffocates with profiteers. <laughs> and then he goes on about what the about how the merchants only serve the the ruling class and stuff like that. Now, it sounds very you know kind of you know revolutionary in in the traditional sense, but it's not quite that because he's so stuck on the ideas of legality and laws that um, it's really just it's like he thinks he's this it's like he thinks that he's this looking out for the common person a Marxist revolutionary but he's actually just very uh, he's he's very by the numbers legalist um, hmm. and he just wants to see laws in place that are completely inflexible and that give him a sense of understanding the world around him. And, well, if he, if he wants the powers of darkness to shape this new world, that almost makes him a wannabe fascist or a wannabe despot. Yeah. Oh, so, yeah, so, exactly. so he, he, he does not want to a revolution going into anarchy and then true free, freedom emerging from anarchy. He wants to reshape the world as he sees fit, which, you know, just makes him an... An opportunist, uh, you know, seeking power to shape the world on his whims. I mean, I mean it, it's almost like he's a more boring RPG villain disguised as a revolutionary. <laughs> yeah, he's. I mean, he's a he's a complete egotist because he wants these he wants these laws in place, but he doesn't want democracy at all. And if he has these laws in place, but he's the one who the laws are based on and what he believes to be objective, um, he's already put himself above the law. So his entire ideology is extremely flawed, um, but he still presses on forward with that and does everything in his power to achieve uh, to achieve that future that he wants. Um, and he doesn't even see how funny it all is. So then putting this in terms of a D&D alignment chart... He en- he enters stage appearing like like as a lawful good, and then it, it becomes clear that he is he thinks he's chaotic good or chaotic neutral. What he really wants to be is lawful evil, but really he's more neutral evil. Yeah, it's I think I think to him he probably sees himself as true neutral. Like he he probably sees himself a bit like Two Face from Batman. You know, the person who flips a coin and just leaves everything, um, what he thinks to be out of his own hands, and into the hands of a a perfect legal system. He doesn't see how that can exist. Well, yeah, but but Two Face came from the law. I mean, Harvey Dent, exactly. Harvey Dent was a lawyer, and he mm-hmm. and had an obsession with justice and fairness, which led him to believe that the only that the only really just way of ruling was pure chance. Mm-hmm. So, th- so that's that's almost like a lawful neutral disguised as a chaotic neutral. It's it's I, I'm not sure. I, I don't. I'm not a D and D player, even though I am a bit of a uh, Square Enix and Batman scholar. Although the, the, <laughs> all of the, the two the two spheres in that uh, in that Venn diagram are you know barely touching each other. Yeah. Okay. If we're, but if we're if we're talking about uh, Batman villains and D and D alignment charts, it might be near the end of the episode. Um, yeah. Thank you so much, Joe, for discussing with me and for uh, doing what I failed to do and playing through the entirety of Vagrant Story. I, I hope it was interesting or illuminating for you because I know that uh, I don't mean to throw shade on you by by saying this, but a lot of RPGs of the '90s and early 2000s are new to you. You ha- you don't have the 
decades of playing <laughs> these games as they were new, as I did. But it's a, I, I hope this was a positive new bullet point in your RPG resume. Definitely, yeah. I would, I would say it's one of my, it's one of my favorites that I've played so far. Yeah, it's great. I'm sure you say that to all the RPGs. No, I don't say that about <laughs> Wild Arms. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> it's all right. You know, you know, I, I, uh, I did enjoy most of Wild Arms Three. It just ended up being too much for me. Um, but and this game was also too much for me. But not, not, not because of the vastness of Wild Arms. More just the. Uh, more for its individual pace and uh like uh how do i say this wild arms 3 was a game dense with content and vagrant story was a game dense with systems and i found that density held me back in both situations that's fair and uh the other game i failed to finish quite on time even though i did finish it like later that day what uh trails of cold steel that game was dense more by just over uh it was dense kind of like wild arms 3 was dense but i thought it was more compelling than either game uh in terms of story and characters and mechanics so i I was able to finish that one eventually Uh, speaking of games that i should be playing for the podcast uh, hopefully i'll finish one out of four over the second half of of 2019 um in december we are doing two episodes on ghost trick phantom detective an old favorite of mine from the early 2010s and I'm really excited to play that to replay that. I played that game once right when it came out and was completely captivated and never replayed it, possibly out of fear that uh, I might notice the flaws more, possibly, but more likely I just didn't have time or the inclination to. So I'm really looking forward to playing that and discussing it on a podcast in a few weeks in December. But before that, we have another very special episode that I've been preparing for quite a lot, actually. Um, next week, we're going to have a second quiz show episode uh, for RPG fan staff. People are going to be uh, answering quiz questions written by me. I'm, I'm hesitating a little bit because of the nature of these questions. But it's going to be very similar to the quiz show episode from May of this year. But uh, there was enough interest both from audience and from RPG fan staff to run another one. And, and it was a lot of fun doing that first one. So a second one is coming next week. Uh, we've recorded part of it, uh, and all of the questions are written. But I still have to record the last part. So I don't know what I don't know exactly um, how it goes, Joe. Uh, like this is, we're talking in the future tense a little bit. We're going to record that just a few days after I'm, we're done recording this. The quiz show episodes are really fun, and if you have any love of RPG trivia or quiz games, uh, I strongly recommend listening to both episodes, the one from May and the one that uh, that comes next week. But uh, in addition to that, we are going to do our regular year in review episode at the end of December, and I am 95% sure that the game after Gross Trick is going to be Suikoden 5. Uh, which which is a game that won a listener poll surrounding episode 200 a few months ago. And uh, the promise was the winner of that poll would be a future retro encounter game within a few months. And we are sticking to that promise. Suikoden 5 is definitely going to be early 2020. I think January of 2020. Mm-hmm. So, uh, But I, I can't 100% say that, but I'm pretty sure that is when Suikoden 5 is going to happen. But, uh, okay, let's step out of Retro Encounter's realm a little bit. Uh, uh, we're f- um, Retro Encounter is part of the RPGFan.com podcasting family. We also have Random Encounter, which focuses on randomness and current events. Rhythm Encounter, which is a music podcast that has not had an episode in a few years, but may yet come back. And also Phoenix Edge, a uh, 
a podcast that is a recent addition to the RPG fan podcast family and also mostly focuses on current events and is hosted live on YouTube every week. You can review, uh, you can review all four of these podcasts, especially Retro Encounter, on iTunes or Google Play or however you are listening to us. We love feedback. And back to the RPGFan.com section of things. Uh, you can comment on RPG fans boards, visit the Facebook page, visit Instagram, Twitter, our Discord server, our Twitch channel, something streaming every day on that Twitch channel. And Joe, uh, as part of the social media team on RPGFan.com, you are often, you know, performing so, some of those interactions on Facebook or Twitter. Yeah, definitely. I am out there trying to to get y'all to talk about games or make you laugh or make you mad at my bad takes so you know any any news is any news is good news so so keep it coming and and yell at me uh i just posted something about how lightning returns has great fashion so if you think uh, (laughs) the dress fear system is uh garbage let me know but don't well dress fears is is 10 too not lightning returns well, it's like a corruption on the dress oh. sphere. Oh, okay. That... So lightning returns brings back dress spheres in a way that I wasn't totally aware of. Mm. It's not explicitly called the dress sphere, but you're dressing up lightning in all these costumes that give her different uh, attributes and jobs and stuff. So, with apologies to my dear friend Peter Treisenberg, I have not played thirty minutes of the entire Final Fantasy Thirteen trilogy. <laughs> do you think? Do you think that's something that I should try? Do you, should we have a retro encounter twenty twenty episode on Final Fantasy Thirteen? Because oh. it's on the Google Doc, and Peter is one hundred percent the person who wrote it on the Google Doc. So, like, so <laughs> I would totally, so I would totally be a part of that. Um, Final Fantasy Thirteen is a game that I have um, tried to play three different times that I've owned on three different systems. Uh, actually, yeah, yeah, I've bought it on Xbox three hundred and sixty twice, on PS three once, and on PC once, um, and I've never gotten more than two hours into it. Um, I did buy it for PS3. I found it. Uh, I found it cheap for like eight dollars or something. Oh yeah. But the uh, but I, I've attempted to play it zero times, m- mostly because of the uh, some of the negative attention surrounding it, and also because I, I'm just always busy with some game or another. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to beat the uh, um, the Fist of the North Star PS4 game before the end of the year, so I'll, I'll be wedging wow. that. I'll be wedging that around uh, rounds of Pokemon and Ghost Trick in December. But yeah, okay, and this almost feels like a random encounter episode now. But uh, <laughs> listeners, you can um, reach us by emailing retro at rpgfan.com is the best way, uh, and also those other facets of rpgfan.com that we mentioned a little while ago. But uh, Joe, if a, you, a listener want, would want to reach you directly, what would be the best way for them to do so? So uh, if you want to reach me, you can do that on Twitter or Instagram or Discord as at Queers for Fears. And uh, as we also said, if you're commenting on RPG fans' posts or anything, you're probably talking to me. Right on. And uh, listeners, if you want to reach me directly, uh, I am always the person responding to messages on, uh, from retro at RPGfan.com. So there's that email. And uh, also, you can find me on Twitter as at the Real Monsoon most of the time, at Evoker for Dogs other times, or Monsoon Mike on Discord. Joe, thank you so much for uh, playing Vagrant Story and then uh, being interrogated about it by me. Um, I'm I'm glad to be interrogated. Oh my, okay. Well, wait, mm. <laughs> I'm not. I'm sorry. I'm not going to edit that out. You you just made a move with your risk meter too high. Oh boy. Thank you. Good night and good luck. <laughs>